0: We're going through the book of Ruth. we only have one week left um, after this one if you 're going to describe what Ruth is um, Ruth is as you guys know because we 've been going through it is is a love story. but the most powerful thing about Ruth is it's a love story written inside of the love story and what is the love story this is the love this is the love story what is the I mean by this is the love story is that John three sixteen says for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to go to the cross and die for your sins and then to the grave and then raise again so you can have a relationship with him and if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ you shall be saved. <laughs> Greatest love story that is out there. It's a love story that all of our hearts long for. It's a love story that we're all desiring for. It's the inner piece of us that wants to be accepted as we are. The inner piece of us that knows that there's something wrong, but we can be washed clean because Christ came to wash us clean. That's the ultimate love story. So the book of Ruth is a love story inside the ultimate love story, which is the Bible. Now with uh, the book of Ruth, there's uh, love through all the pages. And we think that, you know, the, the love story is just between, you know, Ruth and Boaz. And the reason why is because Ruth and Boaz, uh, they get married at the end. We haven't even got there yet, but I'm, we know the story. They get married at the end, and then they have a baby. And after they have a baby, um, they give it to Naomi, which is Ruth's mother-in-law. And then Ruth's mother-in-law raises the baby, and the, Obed was his name. And then Obed had a baby, and the, that baby was named Jesse. And then Jesse had a baby, and that baby was named, was what? David. Man after his own heart. What's it doing? It's pointing to the ultimate love story. So we get wrapped up in this love story and say, well, it's all about, it's all about uh, Boaz and Ruth, but it's not all about Boaz and Ruth. There's lots of love all the way through the pages. You look at Ruth and Naomi. In fact, we spent the first four weeks of this series talking about the, the commitment, the sacrifice, the service of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi were in Moab. Ruth lost her husband, and uh, Naomi lost her husband, and Ruth also lost her husband. They had to make a transition down back into Israel, and Ruth could have stayed there, but she didn't stay there. She looked at her mother-in-law, Naomi, and says, "Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die." I mean that's the story that that's the statement that is in all of the weddings that practically take place of this power of love, this power of commitment, this power of sacrifice, because that's what love is is sacrifice, laying down your life for somebody else. And then Ruth goes into the field to do what? To serve Naomi. She goes in the field to do what? To to work for Naomi. She goes to the field to do what? To provide. Naomi so you see her working like a dog now this is not a job this is a welfare system what I mean by a welfare system is to kind of put it into our world it's like picking up cans on the street you know she's gleaning after the reapers she's coming back and picking up all the little stuff that's down there and she's working extremely hard because she knows that Naomi needs to be provided for Why well, she's working so hard because of her love for Naomi and wanted her taken care of Everybody in the field recognizes Ruth. <laughs> if you ever read the whole story, it's like everybody in the field recognizes Ruth. I mean, the foreman recognizes Ruth because Boaz walks up there, who is the owner, says, well, who is this girl? And the foreman the says, well, let me explain who this girl is. And so Boaz recognizes Ruth. And as Boaz recognizes Ruth, who is the person that owns the corporation in regards to the harvesting that has taken place, um, Boaz starts to protect Ruth. It says, uh, make sure that you know you stay here in this field. Your life is here. It's not everywhere else because out here you can have a lot of other guys that could be looking at you as well, and we don't want that to take place. He brought protection to Ruth saying, don't go to the well and get water because I don't even want you to walk around by yourself because this is even a hostile environment. If you look at the concept, Boaz is pursuing Ruth to make sure she's taken care of. Why? Because she's made an impression on him. He calls her my daughter in a sense that it's, it's a connection of, of relationship, connection of friendship. When he doesn't even know her, but yet he sees her character and responds to her. He tells her from her one status of working in the field as a reaper, I want you to hang out with my girls, which are the harvesters. In other words, hang out with my employers. So Boaz has made, has made this huge step towards Ruth because Ruth has made this impression on him. And then what does Ruth do in response? She looks at Boaz and says, why? You know, why are you looking at me? Why is, what's, what's your connection with me? And, and Boaz says, you know, because I know your character. I know who you are. I know exactly what you've done for Naomi and providing for Naomi. And I'm watching you work for Naomi. And I'm astounded by how much you slave labor to make sure that she's taken care of. I know exactly who you are. And then the romance starts to unfold. He invites her to the lunch, to dinner. It would be a dinner more towards in the evening. And, and then they share a meal together out on the field. Of course, he's with all of his workers as well, but it's something about taking somebody who's reaping and putting her with his staff to have a meal. It's something huge, mostly in the Old Testament. It's absolutely huge. You see a romance start to brew. And then what happens is that after the day of work, because chapter two is just a day, that's all it is. After a day at work, Ruth goes home to Naomi. When Ruth goes home to Naomi, she comes home with what? Not empty handed, oh no, absolutely not. She's full, she, she has lots of barley, lots of barley. Look, five gallons of barley that she brought home. And, say, and, and as she brought this home, Ruth, or Naomi, looks at her and says, how did you get that? That's uh, impossible. And it leads us into the story that when she arrives home in verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Because what you have is something more than you should have. And where have you worked? Must have worked somewhere, and somebody must have provided for you. Blessed be the man who took notice of you, because you could not have gotten as much food if you're on your own out there. So Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I've worked is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness is not forsaken the living and the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our kinsmen, redeemer. Last week we talked about kinsman redeemer. What's a kinsman redeemer? A kinsman Redeemer is somebody in the family that saves somebody in need. In the book of the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God made provisions for those who are suffering, for those who are widows. And these provisions is that the family members can rise up and, and save them if they are in need. We know that Naomi and Ruth are both in need as they're in complete poverty. When Ruth says this is a kinsman redeemer she's locating back to the law and saying I know what God wrote in the law and guess what he is a relative of mine that could be the kinsman redeemer for us. What is a kinsman redeemer? Real quickly there's five different things that a kinsman redeemer can do. He was one that was to avenge the death of a murdered relative. Kinsman redeemer was a guy who would buy back his family. Remember if he's been sold into slavery. Kinsman redeemer was the to redeem or buy back land that had been sold in the family due to extreme hardship and economic struggles. Kinsman Redeemer was one to look after the family member who faced critical need and was helpless to meet those needs. And then the last one, number five, was to marry the wife of a dead brother who had no children, which would be a laborite marriage. This is what a kinsman redeemer could do. Now, when it comes to Naomi and Ruth, they didn't apply for the first three, but the last two Boaz could be the one that can take care of us. Boaz could be the one to take care of us because he's a relative of ours. Or what about the last one? Boaz is the one that could actually marry Ruth. And if he marries Ruth, we will have security for the rest of our lives. If he marries Ruth, we'll have security for the rest of our lives. So Naomi, you can tell there's things going on in her mind as she makes the comment that she's a kinsman redeemer. Here's what Ruth says after she gets that comment. And Ruth, the Moabite, said beside, he said to me, you should keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in the fields you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now look closely at the verses. A couple things I want you to notice. First of all, is after they say, kinsman redeemer, you could actually marry him, and he can save us. Then the thing that Ruth says is, okay, I will go out and he told me to work with his men, and I'll go hang around all of his men. And Naomi says, oh, no, you don't. Work with what? His women. You notice that? Oh, yeah, I think he instructed me to go hang out with all of his guys. No, 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 no. Her mother-in-law is thinking, you go hang out with all of his guys, that means you're not available. <laughs> it means that he won't. He, he can't pursue you. It means you can fall into another relationship. It means that you could get assaulted was the words that she used. It also tells us, this. I think there's a lot of romance going on on these fields out here, if you think about it. I mean, lots of romance brewing. I mean, yes. I, again, as you read the story, it seems like everybody recognizes Ruth. You know, everybody's recognizing her character, her beauty. I mean, it's just, it's just taking place out there. And Boaz recognizes it and makes sure that you stay with us. And then he says, you stay with my young men. But then you say, Ruth says, oh, I think Boaz wants me to stay with the young ladies. And Naomi says, no, don't stay with the young ladies. Stay with the young men. You know, you, you watch out. There's, there's, you can get taken from somebody else. A lot of things that are taking place out there. The other thing I want you to notice is right at the very end. It says, they went out until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. So yes, they went out to work. Remember the chapter two is is what? It's just like one day. But if they go out of the barley and wheat harvest, you're looking at about a four-month period. It's not just one day. Chapter two is one day. But in between chapter two and three would be four months as she lived with her mother-in-law in regards to the barley and wheat harvest. What happened during the four months? What took place? It's said in the passage, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> it's just blank there. Not, nothing. Nothing happened. Whenever nothing happens, something's going on. And you want to figure out whatever the something that is going on. So you can speculate, and we can start thinking, and, and, uh, and I have an idea of what's going on, and scholars have an idea too, but this is my idea of something going on. I think she had, that Boaz had some called dating paranoia, that's what I think, and you might be thinking, is that even a term? It's not a term, but I had it, so <laughs> uh, what is dating paranoia? Um, I grew up with two brothers, an older brother and also a younger brother. And, and I'll tell you, girls scared me. I mean, when I was dating, I mean, dating, I start thinking about it, and I get a cold sweat thinking, oh, I hate dating back then. I love being married. I've been married for 26 years. But dating, I don't even want to think about the concepts of, of dating because girls, I could not believe anybody could say, look at a girl and say, could you marry me? And I'm like, how could you get to this point? When I was a kid, this is the way that I thought. How could I get to the point where I could look at a girl and say, could you marry me? That would be like so scary because she'd probably say no. And I remember the first date I had. We had two conversations. It was a sixth grader. We were in sixth grade when I first dated. Two conversations. Uh, I was in wanna, and I think I was probably showing off during the games, and she came up to me and says, uh, would you like to go out? And I said, uh, Sure. And and then six weeks later, we had our second conversation. She said, I don't think this is working out. When you want to break up? I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll never forget when she actually came up and she stood next to me. And when she stood next to me, I'm like, I was actually thinking, I don't know how to stand. And I, and I was, it was very, very, I mean, this is how bad I was when it comes to uh, dating. I mean, it's like, I don't know what, it didn't get any better. My second date... <laughs> We only had a conversation, and almost two conversations, and this is to warn young people that your dates can come back and haunt you just to let you know, is that this was in seventh grade. I went to church camp, and uh, the first conversation, well, I'm not gonna tell you the first conversation, let me tell you about the week first, is that I recognized somebody, and that person recognized me. How do you know that? It's because you look at them, and then they turn their head. I look at them, and we turn their head. And we look at each other and we are like, oh, and then you kinda know, and then you look longer, and then it kind of gets a little obvious. And we did that for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Well, you gotta go home on Friday, so something's gotta be said. But I wasn't gonna say anything. And so sure enough, we kind of got end up getting kind of like walking across a path and close, and she had somebody else there, and she just looked at me and says, Would you like to take a picture with me? And I said, Sure. So I sat there and I took a, a picture, and she had somebody that just instantly could take a picture with camera. It's all set up and everything. He said, "Maybe we should exchange addresses." And we said, "Okay, we'll change addresses right there." And then camp was over, so we went home and and uh, and we wrote for an entire year. See, this is this is easy. All you have to do is put it on paper. You don't have to look in their eyes, you know. And you can put it whatever you want on paper. And You know, you, she would put perfume on her paper, her notes, and they would come across. And you know, I'm like, oh, perfume, <laughs> boy, it smells good. And you know, we put down, "I love you," and all this kind of stuff. And and we did that, you know, for a solid year. And then after a solid year. I got a John Deere letter that says, okay, I think we're, you know, done, you know, it's breaking up, you know. It's like, okay, yeah, we'll we'll break up. We had a really serious relationship, you know, um, in regards to that. Ten years later, (laughs) oh boy, ten years later, I was a youth pastor. I was married, and I was a youth pastor at Deaver Connor. And we had somebody in our church that, you know, had a lot of money, and he loved the youth group. And he says, I want to take the whole youth group out to dinner tonight and uh, pay for the whole bill. So let's go to the pizza joint. Let's go take everybody out to pizza joint. So what she did is, is uh, we all took, my wife ended up calling, you know, the pizza joint and says, hey, we got 50 people coming to your Can you, can you do that for us? And uh, the hostess says, yeah, that's not a problem. Or somebody said, yes, that it wasn't a problem. So we all got in our rigs and, and 50 people went up to this pizza joint. And when we showed up, my wife was first, and I was, I was kind of bringing up the rear, and, and when my wife walked in the door, the hostess says, what are you doing here? As 50 kids start walking into this pizza place, and it says, well, we got a reservation. I don't know who gave you the reservation, and this hostess was pretty angry, and, and they're going back and forth and says, yeah, but you gave us a reservation. They're all coming because you said yes. Well, we didn't say yes, and, and so I show up, and, and all of a sudden, I walk up to my wife, who's having this conflict with a, with a, a hostess, and I'm like... Oh, my goodness, that was my seventh-grade girlfriend. <laughs> now, we lived in two different parts of Oregon. What's she doing in Albany? I mean, as I was thinking about it, it's like, oh, no, does she recognize me? And I kind of rolled my eyes and tried to go find a seat. And I rolled, <laughs> found a seat. We got through it, and I kind of hid. And then we got in the car, and my wife and I were driving home. As we were driving home, I said, you know that uh, conflict that you had with, uh, you know, the hostess and you in regards to going to the restaurant? So yeah. I go, that's the first girl I ever told I love. And she goes, really? I said, yeah, you know the stories back when we talk about dating in seventh grade? She goes, that was that girl? I said, yeah, that was that girl. It's like, we should go back to talk to her. That's what my wife said. <laughs> I'm like, no, we're not gonna go back and talk to her. No, we can't. we're staying away from that pizza place for the rest of our lives. <sighs> we didn't stay away from that pizza place for the rest of our lives. We went about eight months later guess who where waitress was <laughs> it, it, it was it was her i threatened my wife don't say anything just oh we gotta say something i said no 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 don't say anything you're gonna freak her out she doesn't even know who i am it was the most awkward uncomfortable meal i've ever had with my wife and and she would go and then she was going to come back and i'm like no 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 keep quiet she said, no i am i am i am we got through it we never said anything so we survived He's always got to talk about dating, and I was just like, oh, I just don't even want to think about going back into those days. <laughs> I wasn't any better with my wife, but things when I was dating my wife, but things changed a little bit. I could now talk to a girl, but I couldn't make a decision. I had horrible times making a decision in regards to our our, our dating, um, just in a sense that uh, we started spending time together. You know, we went rafting together, we did some hiking, and and uh, and we even went out to dinner, and we just asked each other. We just had this friendship that was taking place for four months. After four months, she says, all right, Mike, well, you're not talking about anything. Maybe I should talk about something, you know. And then she drops the ball. What do you think is going on here? And and I'm like, I, <laughs> I was on my way to Alaska. I said, well, just let me go to Alaska. When I get back, you know, we can talk about it. So I go to Alaska and then I get back and and then we're and then we, we do keep on spending time together, but we don't have to talk. And finally after two months of that, I said, You know what? I'm tired of being your buddy and we're not gonna be buddies anymore. And I kissed her. And uh, after I kissed her, I said, oh, my goodness, what did I just do? So I took off for five days on a hiking trip. It's like I made a statement of love, then I take off five days on a hiking trip, be back in five days. And sure enough, I came back in five days, okay, I could do this, I could do this. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to Oh, boy, I, everything goes through your mind when you start. At least everything goes through my mind when you start dating. So after about four or five months, I end up going logging, So I leave down into California and start traveling jobs down there. And uh, again, oh, long-term relationship. This is this is working out, you know. And and then I figured out that I could not live without her when I was away from her. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to school, and and we're going to have a relationship. And uh, and we're, as we're having this relationship, you know, yeah, I'm going to make some commitments. So I come back from school. I quit my luggage job. I come back to school, and I'm in school for for two months, and then I look at her and say, "Marry me." <laughs> and then I said. I left, <laughs> went back logging, dropped out of school, went back logging. So, I mean, every time I made a decision, it was a radical exit. So I went back logging. I showed up two days before the wedding, and I got married two days. And, and uh, I planning a wedding for my daughter. I didn't think it took any work or anything because of what happened before. But now I'm noticing that it does take a lot of work. My daughters and my wife, my daughters asked my wife, why in the world did you marry Mike? And, and do you know what she says? She says, I don't know. I must, I must have been smitten so much that I had no brains going on when I married him. So, no, I don't want to look back at dating years because, oh, they're, they're, they're horrible, 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 horrible. And I'm right now getting made fun of with my family as a result of my daughter getting married. And, and uh, anyway, we'll, we'll survive. That's what was taking place the four months with Boaz.
1: <laughs>
0: In other words, four months... Nothing was happening. Sometimes the scholars have said that, well, maybe he's older and she's younger and he just doesn't want to have a conversation with her. But they didn't, there was no meals going on. There's no flirting going on. There's nothing going on. And then chapter 3 starts to unfold that really nothing was going on. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you, is not Boaz, our relative, with whom's young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. He's not doing anything. Maybe we should start doing something. Here's seven different directions. Wash. Therefore, anoint yourself, Ruth, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he had finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. Look out, Boaz. <laughs> They're coming after you. You're going to have to have a conversation. If you look at the seven of them, wash. I mean, is that a really big deal? I mean, we do it every single day. In fact, if you look at America, 450 million gallons of water is used by Americans every single day. Yes, we wash, we irrigate. We, water is just plentiful and we got all sources of it coming through. But back in those days, they weren't using 450 million gallons of water. Often it takes take time to travel to wash. And whenever you wash, it was like something serious is going to take place. The instructions was, roof wash. Because when Boaz see you, you can see that you're serious about something. And then he says, anoint yourself. And What does that mean? He says, put some perfume on. Put on your cloak. That doesn't sound very romantic. What it really means is put on your best garment. Whatever you have that is the nicest, put it on. Go down to the threshing floor because the threshing floor is exactly where Boaz is at. Do not make yourself known to man until he has finished eating and drinking. It's not going to be a casual conversation where you just walk up and have a fast conversation with him. Wait until he is relaxed. Wait until he's sitting down. Wait until you can look at him in the eyes and have a serious conversation with him. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. These are very specific instructions. Why would she say observe the place where he lies? Well, they're going to the threshing floor, and it's the threshing floor. That's where the grain and the wheat that is there, and they're bringing security to the wheat that has already been crumbled out has already been harvested. So they're bringing security to it so nobody comes and steals it. So you don't only have Boaz, who's the owner, you also have a lot of other security people out there. When she says, make sure that you look down and watch where he lays down, is saying, don't pick the wrong guy. (laughs) Remember what's gonna take place. It's gonna get dark outside. And, And you don't wanna go up to somebody's feet and uncover his feet, which is gonna take place and have it the wrong guy. So make sure that you... Get this in your head. Make sure that you keep an eye where he lies down. And then do what? Uncover his feet. What is uncovering his feet? It is a statement um, of humility in the sense of this is my position. But it's also something that um, you don't want to startle somebody in the middle of the night. Remember what they're doing. They're bringing security to the threshing floor. They're bringing security to the threshing floor. And you grab the guy's blanket and you pull it back from his head. You could get punched. So you got to make sure that he's just relaxed, uncover his feet, let the breeze touch his feet, and he'll calmly wake up, and then you will be right there. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of the grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet to lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And he answered, I am Ruth, your servant. And Ruth said, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What does it mean, spread your wings over a servant? It means make a pledge to me. You're a redeemer. Make a pledge to me. It's aggressive. Marry me, is what she's saying. And he said... May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made the last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen. Know that you are a worthy woman. Makes a huge statement about Ruth. You made this last kindness greater than your first. What was her first kindness? Her first kindness was where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your God is my God. Where you die is where I die. Who she make that commitment to? She made it to Naomi. It was given to Naomi. And then she's making another commitment right here to Boaz. And he says, that was really amazing, but this is even more amazing. And why is it more amazing? is because she's not working for herself. She's not proposing or even asking them to be redeemed for herself. She's asking to be redeemed for Naomi. She's asking for redemption for Naomi because, I mean, at the very end of the verse, it says you could have had any guy. You could have gone after a person, whether rich or poor. That's what the verse says. You could have had anybody, but if you took anybody, Naomi would have still had nothing but you took me instead. You're not thinking of yourself. You're giving your life away so your mother-in-law can live. Then he says in the words that every townsperson knows that you are a worthy woman, somebody that they would like to have. But yet you chose me, Boaz, an older person. Maybe Boaz didn't, pursue her because he didn't want to pursue her unless she was wanting to love him because if she loved him what's going to take place a line of jesus would come if she loved him what would take place they could have a baby be married. I'm not going to marry somebody who wants to use me. I want to marry somebody who loves me. And he didn't say anything to her. and what does she do? And her mother-in-law, the aggression going to him, The aggression had to go to Boaz because he's a redeemer. He's the one that brings salvation. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Another redeemer will be talked about next week. That's what he's saying in that passage. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garments you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and measured about six measures of barley and put it in her, put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. There's a lot of uh, ancient code going on in this passage. Gave you measures, six measures of barley, because I don't want your mother-in-law to come back empty-handed. What does food go? It goes into your stomach. There's a statement that's saying, I'll give you a baby. And tell your mother-in-law, you'll be fed tell your mother-in-law, you'll be taken care of and all your needs will be met. Then Naomi's response to that was, don't rest, don't worry about it. He'll make sure this matter is settled. When you look at this concept of a, of a redeemer, you see aggression towards the one who redeemed. You see an aggression towards one who, Who redeemed. What does Redeemer mean? Redeemer means means savior. Means somebody that that rescues. When you see somebody that can rescue, somebody that can save you, what is there? There's not just a, oh yeah, that person can save me. There is an aggression that takes place, and we see it in the passage of all the aggression that Naomi and Ruth both have. There is a Redeemer. (laughs) We're not going to pass this up. There is a Redeemer. We got to take it. There is a Redeemer. We got to go after it redeemer is one who saves you whenever you need saving do you know what you do you go after the one that saves you or you go after the item that saves you it was on the grand canyon in um, august and uh, we were there during uh, during the monsoon season and uh, we had a tarp a big tarp that was kind of a, a canopy 20 by 20 and we put an ore in the middle and this tarp was our shelter that's what we slept under that's where we cooked under that's what we did everything under and then all of a sudden, it starts raining. Where did we go? We went to the Redeemer, <laughs> to that tarp, because it redeemed us from all the rain just completely smashing into us and getting us completely wet. It brought dryness to us. So as soon as the rain hit, where do we see? Everybody starts running, everybody starts going. Why, because it saves us from the rain. We had one person ended up flipping it, this rapid called Crystal, Marvok is the one that flipped. And uh, when, when he went over, you got two people in the water, Ben Dittman and Marvot were swimming in the water. And it was rough water, and it was also a place that you really don't want to swim because the rapid continues to go. So what do they look for? They look for redemption. Jeremy Ott was right next to Ben, took a throw line, and threw it to Ben as fast as he possibly could. Ben grabbed a hold of it. Why? Because it brought redemption. He was focused on getting out of there. And he was aggressive to make sure that he got out of there. So then he was pulled back to the raft. Marvot, what did you want? He wanted air. Well, what has air? He's close to his raft, so he grabs a hold of his raft that is upside down to keep his head above the water because the water is boiling pretty hard. What does he do? He floats down that whole thing, and his redemption is what? Hanging onto that raft, making sure that his head is above the water. You don't relax when you need saved. You just don't. You aggressively go after the point when you need saved, just like Naomi and Ruth. You aggressively go after it. Saddest thing in the world is it? We live in a world that people just don't know they need to be saved. We even, in churches and our church people, we don't even know we need to be saved. Yeah, we might get saved, we might not. We, we know that there's a Redeemer out there, but there's no aggression that's going towards the Redeemer. No aggression that goes towards the Redeemer. Number one, redemption is not a business transaction, it is a love affair. Ask the question why do you love God? And come up with multiple answers. I love God because it makes me happy. I love God because it gives me joy. I love God because he gives me peace. I love God because he gives me rest. I love God because the principles in the Bible give me instructions that bring life. I love God because life is so much better if you love God. You should only love God for one reason. One reason. He's the Redeemer. And he's brought redemption to you. Every other reason on the entire planet is conditional. I love God because he gives me a good marriage. Well, what happens if you don't have a good marriage? Well, then God's not working. I love God because he provides for me. What happens if you don't feel like you're provided for? He's not working. But if you love God it's as stable and as strong and as powerful, and it is the answer that every person needs. I love you for one reason, because you're a redeemer. And my whole world falls apart, but that's all right. Why? Because I still have the Redeemer. What does that do to you? It makes you aggressive. It makes you move towards God. It makes you want more of God. It makes you need God. It makes you rely on God. Why? Because you're feeding on the concept that he's the Redeemer. Number two, Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. What are you going to do about it? The biggest question you could probably ever ask in your life. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. What are you going to do about it? It's what he did leaving heaven and coming to earth is so big that every person on the planet has to do something about it. You can ignore it. You can criticize it. I mean, we do that. We have a swear word. Jesus Christ is a swear word that we use, so we hear that consistently being said. You can mock it. You can reject it. You can run from it. Whole world is doing it. Or you can embrace it. You can fall at his knees and say, I gotta go after this. There's salvation out there that is the price has already been paid. I, I gotta go, I gotta go after it. Same thing Ruth and Naomi did is they found their Redeemer. So they were aggressive, they were bold. They put themselves out there. And they wouldn't stop until they got the answer because they knew that there was a Savior out there. And they went after it. Jesus is the Redeemer. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love him for it. But how do you love him for it? Okay, you accepted Christ, but how do you love him for it? Just give you three fast principles of how you love, for it. love him for it. Number A: pursue him in prayer. If he's the Redeemer, you got to talk to him. You have to talk to him. You know, I told you stories about dating way back then, and I didn't know how to talk to girls, and it was it was. It was not good, but I've been married for 26 years, and, and my wife is amazing, and she's made me into a talker so much that I'm even a preacher right now. I'm going to a, a marriage retreat next week, and my whole concept is you gotta talk, you gotta talk, you gotta talk, you gotta talk, because if you talk, there's relationship. If you talk, there's, there's life. It's the same concept with God. If you don't talk, there's no relationship. If you don't talk, there's no life. If you do talk, there's relationship. If you do talk, there's life. That's why we've been given the vehicle of prayer. God says, stay in it. I've redeemed you. Stay in it. Stay committed to it. Be aggressive with it. Let her be. Fall in love with him by reading his word. My wife didn't only teach me how to talk. She also um, taught me how to to listen. (laughs) Because if I don't listen, I get in trouble. (laughs) You know, We we know that. Um, Taught me how to listen. Carry strength when you listen. Did you know that all of us want to talk and nobody wants to listen i'm um, going to tell you this and, and uh, don't hold it against anybody, but you know in the in the foyer when somebody walks in, you know we train our greeters in a sense of don't be talkers, be listeners don't be talkers, be listeners because when you talk actually it connects you with the person so just listen and let the person talk. think about that if you do that with the Word of God. open up the Bible and just let God talk and think about the connection and the strength that could be coming your way in regards to that relationship. He's the redeemer. You gotta do something. You have to pursue him. That's where you pursue him. Let Her see. walk with him by being loyal. Everybody tries to find a way to hate the Bible and, and one of the ways that people hate the Bible is it's all about rules, it's all about regulations, it's, it's all about laws. Um, it's not at all. It's all about relationship. So if there's any rule, any law, any regulation that is given, it's about making the relationship whole. That's what it is. You look at the concept of you and the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Why would God tell you not to commit adultery? Because I don't want you to break the relationship with your husband or your wife. That's why that is there. You don't lie. I mean, why do we not lie? Because I don't want you to break relationships with your family members. I don't want you to break relationships with your co-workers. Lying does. It will break relationships. Um, Forgive. I mean, just that concept. We've got to mend relationships. It's all about relationships. Do not have greed. If you have greed, what's going to take place? It's going to annihilate all your relationships. If you're going to have selfishness, it's going to annihilate all your relationships. I mean, it's all specific about relationships. So God gives you this whole concept to say, maintain beautiful relationships with others, and here's how you do it, and it's called the Word of God. But also inside the word of God, all these things that we're doing to others, we're supposed to be what? Doing to God. Do not love the world or anything in the world? Love the world, love of the Father is not in you. Why? Because you're having, an, committing an adultery with somebody else besides God. Just God wants to have a relationship with you. That's what the entire Bible is about. Number three, Christ does not redeem individuals, it's just redeem individuals. Christ redeems the individuals that love him for it. Redemption is a word that sets love on fire. Redemption is that somebody gives, somebody sacrifices, somebody rescues, somebody serves, somebody dies for you. Those are all hot sparks that set people on fire. God is our Redeemer. We like the story of Ruth because we see Ruth and Naomi get redeemed by Boaz, and we just love it. It is awesome. But that story is with you as well because the ultimate redeemer that it, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz is pointing towards is towards Jesus Christ. What do you do? You find him. You go after him. You chase him. i tell you, because what he has done, you will love him for it. That's why we even do the Christian life. That's why we obey. That's why we commit ourselves to God. That's why we show up every week and praise His name, is because of what He's done for us. God, we just um, thank you, God, for being the Redeemer. We are a people that need to be saved. We are sinners. Every single one of us in this room are sinners, God. And God, you cannot have a relationship, look in somebody's eyes with sin on them. Price must be paid. You're a Redeemer because you paid that price. Thank you so much for leaving heaven, going to earth, and living a perfect life, dying on the cross, and raising again so we could look at you face to face for eternity. I just pray, God, if there's anybody in this room, God, that has not believed on you, has not received that amazing gift, that you are open their eyes to this truth, and that they'd find it. I do pray for those that, who are saved. I just pray, God, that we won't stop pursuing you. Pursuing you in prayer, pursuing you in your word, Pursuing you in obedience. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.